All right, well, good morning, ladies. Um, welcome to those of you who are here at Ladies Bible Study um, in person and those joining uh, via the podcast. Um, it is so good to be together. Now, this morning, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 19, and I've broken it up into two sections. So the first is a question, um, verses 1 through 12, a question concerning relationships. And then in verses 13 through the end, a question concerning good deeds. Now, if you remember from last week, Eva walked with us through chapter 18 on Christ's heart for the citizens of his kingdom, how he has called us to a posture of childlike faith, that of humble dependence on our Heavenly Father, how um, God has called us to take our sins seriously, both ours and that of others, and how we are to pursue restoration, reconciliation, and unity, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven us. Now, verse 1 of our chapter this morning um, begins with a geographical shift as Jesus continues his final journey down to Jerusalem. But thematically, I believe it really will follow along with chapter 18's focus on unity, love, and reconciliation. You and I both know it is one thing to forgive a brother um, or a sister out there in public, but it's a whole other thing when we're taking it home in our families and in our marriages. So let me pray, and then we'll begin by reading chapters 19, um, verses 1 through 12. Let's pray. Lord God, we do again just thank you so much for this time to meet together. I pray, Lord, that as um, your word goes out, Lord, that, um, that what is from you would stick in our minds, Lord, but um, any words that are my own or, or from me and, and not you, Lord, that those would just fall away. Um, so I pray that you would... Convict our hearts and help us to see you more clearly this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, now I'm just going to be reading here verses 1 through 12. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive the same, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Now, as Barb explained in her review two weeks ago, we are now entering a period of Jesus' ministry that is marked by intense opposition. Barb noted, the drama between Jesus and the opposition has been climaxing and will continue to build until the end of the book. We see that this morning in our text as the Pharisees come at Jesus with another question to test him. They ask, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? 
Now, just as this is a sensitive and nuanced conversation today, it's possible that the disciples were asking about divorce in a bid um, to upset the large crowd that was present, trying to trap Jesus no matter his answer. Or if you remember um, from a few chapters earlier about John the Baptist, perhaps they were trying to entrap Jesus in the whole Herod Herodias um, affair and ensure him the same fate as John the Baptist. Now at the time, views on divorce were sticky, even amongst Jewish leaders and teachers. Some said that divorce was illegal under all circumstances. Some said that divorce was legal on the grounds of gross indecency, such as adultery. And still others said that divorce was allowable on the grounds of seemingly any offense, from the wife presenting an improperly cooked meal to the husband simply desiring a prettier woman. Thankfully, that's not the case. (laughs) Um, Jesus knew the hearts of the Pharisees who were asking these questions. He knew the hearts of everybody who was present in that crowd, and he knows the hearts of every one of us today. Now, I don't know your history or your personal experience with divorce. I don't know how closely this passage hits home. But if statistics mean anything, I think it's probably pretty safe to assume that we all come to a conversation on divorce with a specific family or friend or situation in mind. Um, So let's turn to Jesus' response to catch a glimpse of his heart on this matter. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? He said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one. But therefore, God has joined together. Let not man separate. Now we'll see here, Jesus does not go back to the original law given by Moses concerning marriage and divorce. He goes back even further. He goes to creation, to the original institution of marriage. Now, if you'll remember back in the garden, everything God made was good. The light was good. The land and the oceans were good. The clownfish and blue jays were good. The lions and giraffes were good. Everything was good. Adam was set in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And here we have the very first bad news of scripture. And I'm just going to turn there and read from Genesis 2, 18 through 20. Then the Lord said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whenever the man called every living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Adam did not have a suitable helper. Someone to come alongside of him in the task of glorifying God and having dominion over the rest of creation. So God got to work and fashioned a woman from Adam's rib making a woman who was bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh, a woman whom he could hold fast to and again become one flesh with. This is the design of marriage, for a husband and a wife to leave their nuclear families and to be joined, covenanted together by God himself. So therefore, what God has joined, let not man separate. Okay, that all sounds good. We all agree on that. Um, We've all heard this history and the divine intent outlawed at every God-honoring wedding ceremony since the dawn of time. But what about sin? What about brokenness that has now entered every human relationship since the fall? What about the selfishness, the bitterness, the anger and pain that now seeps into every marriage covenant? What about the adultery or the improperly cooked meals? So the Pharisees respond, what about the command given by Moses? 
to give a certificate of divorce and send one's wife away. The laws given by Moses concerning divorce are found in Deuteronomy 24, 1-4. And if you read them carefully, you'll note that the Pharisees are misinterpreting and twisting the ancient law in how they word their question. As D.A. Carson puts it, Moses did not command divorce but permitted it for something indecent. Moses' concession for permitting divorce reflected not the true creation ordinance, but the hardness of men's hearts. Divorce is not part of the creator's perfect design. If Moses permitted it, he did so because sin can be so vile that divorce is to be, is to be preferred to continued indecency. Divorce is never to be thought of as a God-ordained, morally neutral option, but as evidence of sin, of hardness of heart. Or as another commentator put it, you see, Moses didn't command, go wreck your car and get a new one. Rather, he saw all the car wrecks and felt compelled to write some rules for the road. Moses was trying to regulate the wrecks. Now, Jesus picks up on this intent of the law in his final reply to the Pharisees in verses 8 through 9. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Because of your hardness of heart. Divorce was allowed because sin had permeated marriage relationships, leading to indecency and to hard hearts. But from the beginning, it was not so. This was not the design for marriage from the beginning. Now, there are a million circumstance-specific questions that could be asked here particularly around the exception clause found in verse 9, or with something like um, the presence of abuse. And I encourage you, if you have these questions, to speak with a pastor or elder or godly um, wise woman, um, like our deacon of women's ministry, Barb. Relationships are messy. Marriages are messy. Divorce and the situations leading up to it and the ramifications after it are hard and painful and not meant to be walked through alone. But on a broader level, let me try to reiterate Christ's heart and intent here in these verses. It is clear marriage was meant to be good, intended to be a lifelong commitment that would bring glory to God and allow mankind to image their creator. But because of our sin, because of our hardness of heart, divorce is permitted in specific circumstances, such as adultery, abuse, or abandonment, found in other places in scripture. Now, recently, I was listening to a podcast and the two ladies were talking about teaching our sons to be pure. They explained that not only do we need to say, hey boys, don't look at pornography, but we also need to show them the goodness, the beauty of marriage, of a marriage that honors the Lord. So they'll see how broken and shallow the world's view of hookups and um, sex is, and that they'll be drawn to the biblical pattern for love and marriage. And I think in a similar way that this is what Christ is getting at in his answer to the Pharisees. He says that divorce is permitted in some situations, but he spends the bulk of his reply putting the beauty and goodness of a God-honoring marriage on display. Now, I pray that most of the marriages represented in this room this morning are not facing the shockwaves created by things such as adultery, abuse, or abandonment. But I know that we all face difficulties in our marriage, in our marriages. We, we all struggle with anger, bitterness, criticism, selfishness, and the list could go on. Now, to those whose marriages are not living up to the creation ideal of the two coming together and becoming one flesh, joining together seamlessly 
in perfect unity and love. Um, Let us not forget what we've just heard Jesus teach in chapter 18. He has just called his kingdom citizens to walk in humble dependence, to take sin seriously, to protect one another from temptation, and to care for one another enough that we'll risk our own comfort and our own fears to point out the sin in another's life with the goal of restoring them, to forgive our brothers from the heart. Let's apply these principles out there for sure, um, but let's also not forget to be applying these principles at home, in our marriages, um, and in our families. So when your husband leaves the wet towel on the floor for the 77th time, seventh time, um, let's, not res- let's respond with patience and grace, not with anger. Um, or when we see him responding angrily to one of our children, let's go to our brother in private and tell him his fault, lovingly, with the goal of helping him to be more like Christ. And I should note, let's respond with humility, with a softness of heart, when on the flip side, we have our own sin pointed out to us. Now our passage takes a slight turn as the conversation shifts from a public testing to a more intimate conversation. We see in verse 10 through 12, um, the disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. The disciples approach Jesus, surprised by what he has told the Pharisees. If marriage is not meant to be disposable, If we really have to deny ourselves to unite to our wives, um, if we really do have to stick to our commitments, then it's better not to marry in the first place. As we've seen time and time again, the disciples are missing the point. They are focusing on the difficulty of marriage, the permanence of it when it isn't easy, um, when what Christ is trying to show them has been the beauty and the goodness of marriage. Yet Christ's response is not, hey bozos, that's pretty selfish, do not want to work through marriage struggles when they come. Um, Instead, he gives a short teaching on the merits of singleness. He says, okay, if you think singleness is so much easier than marriage, don't forget that living for the kingdom of heaven is even better. Christ admits that not all are able to be single to the glory of God. Not everyone can receive this saying. Not everyone can be single without seriously struggling to fight the temptations of lust, discontentment, or jealousy. Um, But for those who are able to receive it, singleness can also be used for the furtherance of the kingdom. Jesus tells of how there are some who are eunuchs or celibate, who have been so from birth, some who've been made so by others, and those who've decided to be so themselves for the sake of the gospel. Jesus is teaching that as high as our view ought to be on marriage, as we saw in the preceding section, our view of the gospel and kingdom work ought to be even higher. The kingdom of heaven is so important that it shouldn't be unusual for someone to choose to remain single in order to fully give themselves to gospel work. I think we often see this in those who've chosen to remain single and have gone to the mission field um, to give themselves to gospel work. I had a professor in Bible college who was in his 50s and had chosen not to marry so that he could have the flexibility and the resources to pour into others. He did this by always having an open door for his students, um, engaging in pretty well everything in campus life, and actively serving his church body. And in our church, I think there are numerous single men and women who who give tirelessly of their time and energy for our church family. Whether they will remain single or end up married with families, they've embraced the freedom of their present singleness um, to be able to serve formally and informally. 
I think of those like Eric Cherrier or um, Beth and Sarah Egberts, Michaela So, and so many more at our church um, who are here almost every time the door is open. Um, they serve in various ministries and capacities. And these friends have also been such a blessing, I think, to our family, loving us, helping care for our boys, um, and stepping in when the demands of ministry will pull Utah away at times. Um, so let us, as a church, be thankful for the singles in our midst who are on the front lines of ministry, those who prize the gospel and desire to give themselves for it. And let us think of ways to, as the family of God, intentionally include those singles into the normal life and rhythms of our families. Let us help them and ourselves battle loneliness and lift high the glory of gospel unity by doing life together. Now to sum up this first half of our chapter, I think whether you are married or single, there is a lofty call for us as citizens of the kingdom. We are to live in a way that puts the beauty and goodness of marriage on display, to be a witness to the divine intent of marriage from the beginning. Or we are to use our singleness unselfishly, humbly giving of time, resources, and energy for the sake of kingdom work. Now our text now shifts from the question concerning relationships to the question concerning good deeds. And I'm going to read um, 13 through the end. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Now here we see Jesus is approached by a rich young man who asks, what must I do to have eternal life? This question does not seem to be testing Jesus in the same way as the Pharisees, those who sought to discredit Jesus or vilify him. But the young man's response is again one of rejection. Jesus responds clearly to the young man that he must keep the commandments, specifically listing that he should not murder, commit adultery, steal, bear false witness, and that he should honor his parents and love his neighbor as himself. 
These commands are found in Exodus 20, verses 12 through 16, and in Leviticus 19, verse 18. Now we may ask, why does Jesus not list all of the Ten Commandments? Or why does he not give the answer that he will give in Matthew 22, telling that the greatest commandment is to love God with all of your heart, soul, and mind? Jesus knew the young man's heart. He knew his temptations and vices. And so, as a loving parent slowly draws out their child to help them see their sin, Jesus is slowly drawing out this young man to help him see what he is idolizing. The young man may be keeping the commandments externally, as he answers all these I have kept. He may be doing all of the right things, but his sorrow over being asked to sell all that he possessed reveals that he was idolizing his riches and earthly comfort. As Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This young man's heart was caught up in his earthly treasure, and so he was not able to follow Christ. The rich young man was looking for the way to be perfect. He was looking for eternal life. Both of those are future benefits of salvation, but this man was trying to do it in his own strength. He was attempting to pull himself up by his bootstraps to check off the list of good deeds without obeying from the heart level. And as Jesus tells in verse 16, with man, this salvation is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. In our own strength, in our own ability, we can do nothing to make ourselves perfect. Sure, we can look nice on the outside. We can have the permanent smile and be known as, oh, so sweet. Um, but without Christ, these strivings will leave us as nothing more than a whitewashed tomb full of dead man's bones. The rich young man in our passage knew this. He knew that his strivings for moral perfection were not enough. As he replies to Jesus, all these I've kept, but what do I still lack? He knew he was still missing something. And the answer is, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Christ. Now, what is our example in this act of self-denial? Christ himself. As our passage is set amongst the definitive statements um, in verse six, or chapter 16, 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And then we will see in, in the next chapter 20, verse 28, as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Christ came in humility. He came to serve. He came to deny himself. He came in obedience to the Father. And I know these words are familiar to all of us, but in Philippians 2, 5 through 8, we're encouraged. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And this life of self-denial, of sacrifice, is what he calls his followers to, the citizens of his heavenly kingdom. I should add here that Christ is not condemning wealth or saying that those who are well off are unable to be saved. In verses 23 and 24, he tells um, how it is only with difficulty that a rich person will enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Um, riches and wealth are not inherently the enemy here. I'm reminded of Old Testament kings David and Solomon, or of New Testament believers Joanna and Susanna, or Joseph Arimathea. These are all men and women who have had faith in the God of Israel and who were materially wealthy. 
The problem is one of the heart, one of idolatry. Is your heart consumed by your riches, as was the case with the young man in our passage? Or is it a heart of generosity who views material wealth as an aid to and help in furthering the work of Christ? It is not impossible to be wealthy and saved, um, but it is with difficulty, as you might f must fight the temptation to rest in your riches or continually covet after more. I'm reminded of Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9, which say, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of God. Now, what about those who do leave everything and follow Jesus? Now, Peter, our buddy, is quick to ask this question, as he and the other disciples have indeed forsaken all. They've left their livelihoods, their comforts, or even families for the sake of following Jesus. Verse 28 tells, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. No matter what your eschatological position, um, I think our text is pretty clear here that there will be a special role and responsibility for the twelve disciples in the end times when Christ is on his throne. And for the rest of us, Christ says that everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. There's a temporal, present fulfillment of this verse in most cases, as those who've been united with Christ are grafted into the body of Christ, into the church. As um, even Audrey shared, just, just the, the joy and the love over having a church family. That we, even though our family may be far, we may be separated, um, we still have a family. We have a home. Um, and those who are in Christ are now part of a family. We're made up of hundreds of spiritual mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters. And there's such sweet comfort in these words. <clears throat> now, you may have noticed that I didn't spend much time on the middle verses um, of our text, verses 13 through 15. And in these verses, um, Jesus again speaks of how the children of heaven, or the kingdom of heaven, belong to those who've come to him as little children, humbly, dependently, with childlike faith. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. I hope that throughout our chapter you've seen this thread of humility. Jesus' words have been continually calling his kingdom citizens to live with a heart posture of humility. In marriage and in singleness, love others humbly. Let us not be too proud that our hearts are hard to forgive and be reconciled. Let us respond to sin with grace, humility, and love. Let us hold high the divine intent of marriage and where possible put it on display to others. Let us lay aside our comforts and desires to serve those around us humbly. Let us give ourselves for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let us hold loosely to our earthly possessions. And at the same time, let's not be self-righteous, um, but sacrifice our comforts out of a love for Christ, a desire to make his name great, and the knowledge that he will graft us into his family. And as it says at the end of our text, but many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Let's pray. Dear God, um, again, we thank you for time this morning to sit under your word. I pray, Lord, that all of us would leave this place um, just with a conviction um, of the ways in which we put ourselves first, of the ways in which we um, fail to, to humbly submit to, to your call for us as kingdom citizens. Um, 
And I pray that you would just walk with us this upcoming week, um, helping us to love those around us uh, selfishly, selflessly. <laughs> and I pray for those who may not know you um, this morning who are hearing these words, Lord, that, um, that they would just see the, the beauty and the, um, the goodness of the gospel of Christ coming to die for sinners like us, um, to make it possible for us to know you, to have a relationship with you, um, and to walk with you, Lord. And I pray that you would be going out with us all this week. We pray this in your name. Amen.